Beyond the Fence Line, a podcast brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Created by landowners for landowners, we're proud to play a role in conserving the Texas legacy of wide open spaces. Well, I'd like to wel- welcome everybody to Beyond the Fence Line. My name is Andy James, and I am the Land Transaction Manager here at the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Um, and I'm going to serve as today's podcast host. Today, we're going to be talking about wildlife and working lands and explore the relationship between the two. Uh, today, I have two very special guests with, with us. Uh, one is Dr. Dale Rollins, um, and we've also brought in our own Hannah Blankenship, who also works for TALT. Um, Dr. Rollins, welcome. And Hannah, well, well, welcome back. Uh, this, this, this is not your first time. Um, when we think about quail in Texas, uh, we think about Dr. Rollins. He's somebody that comes to mind and, and kind of comes to the top of the list for, for, for many folks. Um, you've had an extremely impressive background in quail research. Uh, you've been awarded the rank of professor and extension specialist emeritus. Um, you've also, uh, just a few years ago, led a statewide reversing the quail decline initiative. And you were also a member of the Texas Conservation Hall of Fame. With, if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Rollins, would you give us a little more background maybe on yourself and, and maybe where did the interest in quail and, and wildlife conservation begin for you? Sure thing, Andy, and it's great to be with you and Hannah this morning. I know both of you quite well, and, and we've, we've uh, ran the river together several times in various programs over the years, and it's, it's great to see y'all doing good. My interest in quail started when I was five years old. I lived in a small rural community there in the southwestern corner of Oklahoma, Hollis, Oklahoma. We lived five miles south of town, and one day about this time of year, June, I was in the kitchen with my mother and the window was open and there was a bird going. And she said, do you hear that bird? It calls its name, Bob White. That was when I was five years old. I'm 67 now. And it's been calling me both personally and professionally for the last 62 years. That's that's, that's very interesting. And it definitely started at a young age, I think for myself as well. I'm can't speak for Hannah there, but yeah, I'm definitely with you in terms of seems like it's something that's kind of ingrained in you from, from the very start in terms of that interest in wildlife conservation. Um, with all the experience that you do have uh, and kind of putting that in perspective with wildlife and, and working lands and how those two kind of come together, um, what are some relationships that, that, that you've seen uh, maybe with wildlife and as well as land and maybe land management and kind of how those two go, go, go together. Well, I'm going to quote, I'm an Okie, as is Hannah, and I often quote Will Rogers. And Will Rogers said that America's good fortune can't possibly last longer than our natural resources. So if in order for us to conserve our natural resources, we've got to have good stewards of the land and uh, the, the farmers and ranchers that are good stewards and have wildlife as one of their objectives. Uh, I always tell people that a rancher with bird dogs is the best friend a quail has because every time he makes a decision, he's thinking of both his vocation and his avocation. And that's the kind of thing I wish we, I wish every farmer and rancher had a bird dog. I would like to see more emphasis on quail. Sometimes I think too many of our agricultural community, and I'm talking about, you know, you can't paint with a broad brush as you can appreciate. But 
it seems like the ever larger increasing size of agriculture and so forth, uh, maybe a little apathy towards quail. And I think that's unfortunate because they are certainly one of those iconic species that most people like to hear. So I'm always championing those people that are doing a good job and there are plenty of them. I agree, Dr. Rollins. This is uh, Hannah Blankenship, stewardship manager here at TALT. And uh, I think a little bit of it might be out of sight, out of mind. They're one of the smaller game species and um, people don't really, just don't really think about them that often. And there are a lot of management practices that you can do that are simple, like half cutting trees to provide loafing cover or something like that, that is simple, easy to do. And um, we just don't really think about it. I've got a comment on Hannah just a minute. I met her roughly 12 years ago when she came as a, probably about a sophomore in high school to the Bob White Brigade and is, is the great example of just what we hope to produce after that five-day boot camp on Bob White's and that's young leaders with a passion for conservation and a knowledge of Bob White's in particular. And then we have other camps for other species, but always very proud of Hannah. And if you ever have a chance to meet her, her nickname is Vice Grip. I won't, I won't go any further, but when you meet her and shake her hand, you'll know what I mean. I'll try to continue to keep living up to that nickname. <laughs> and on that, the Bob White Brigade is where my love of quail started. I was one of those kids that was all into deer hunting and duck hunting. And then when the opportunity arose to attend the Bob White Brigade, that was honestly where I learned about most of the habitat and the management and my love for quail has where came from. Well, I'm proud to have worked with a lot of different wildlife species over my career with Texas A&M. And I, and I love, people think that I'm just a quail hunter. And I, I tell people I can only afford one vice and my vice is quail hunting, but I enjoyed ducks. I, I used to call turkeys with your dad. Hannah and, and uh, had great times with him. So uh, I just, uh, sometimes I get in a uh, debate, I guess, you are, a contest if you wish, with a lot of the deer people in Texas and they're talking about Boone and Crockett this and high fence that, and to which I retort, every quail is a trophy. So do you think there are some management practices that are beneficial to a wide range of species, including quail, that most people do for deer already? Absolutely. Uh, not all of them are. And as a quail manager, I, I exhort people to think like a quail and to realize that we want to, we can't change, we, we use Leonard Skinner's free bird as the national anthem of quail management. And the refrain therein, the refrain therein goes, and this bird you cannot change. So we've got to be able to change the habitat to fit the Bob White's adaptations. But there are a lot of things, Aldo Leopold, I mentioned Will Rogers a while ago, Aldo Leopold was a national figure, father of wildlife conversation, conservation, I'm sorry. And he said that the same tools that were heretofore used to destroy wildlife in their habitat, namely the ax, plow, cow, fire, and gun could also be used to restore game populations. And on the back 40, we use axe as brush control. We use plow with our soil disturbance and our government farm programs and those farming practices. 
We use the cow in terms of grazing management and we use the fire in terms of prescribed burning. So all those tools, uh, we can tailor those. We can modify the existing techniques, tweak them a little bit and probably have a favorable impact on bobwhite habitat. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Rollins, I'm gonna kinda, kinda change directions here a, a, a little bit, but kinda build on what you just said um, at the same time. But as we look at uh, from the Texas Agricultural Land Trust perspective and, and working lands, uh, keeping lands working, uh, but also uh, from quail and quail habitat, quail management, uh, I, I would think that there's probably some similarities into some of the, the threats that are that we're facing and, and a lot of those are probably some of the same things that quail are facing um would you mind touching on some of those those items and maybe we can kind of see uh what what quail are dealing with as well as maybe other wildlife uh, and habitat uh issues that, that are going on in our state well whenever you whenever you think of habitat fragmentation i know that that's something near and dear to the mission of TALT. Uh, that's near and dear to the mission of anybody interested in quail. And I, I always tell people when I think of that term fragmentation, I think of a grenade, a hand grenade. And when it goes off, it's a bad thing for those surrounding it. And our exploding human population, uh, don't quote me on the numbers, but anyone can appreciate Texas population growth. I think it's projected to be like 50 million here in 20 years or something like that. The demand for our natural resources from our water to our space, those kind of things, all of those impinge on various wildlife species. Uh, for quail and for the many of the grassland songbirds that are associated with quail, and I, I often use quail as what I call the bobwhite, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's after day five of bobwhite brigade, I'm still a little fuzzy. I often refer to the bobwhite as the canary of the prairie. And the, the iconic Bob White can serve as an umbrella species to help protect a lot of things, everything from horn lizards to cats and sparrows, you name it. And those birds are never gonna, those critters are never gonna be hunted. They're riding on the coattails of the Bob White and that iconic whistle. So uh, yes, there are a lot of things you can do and, and using quail as the barometer for that, I think is always a good idea. That's a great point. I think oftentimes people don't really think about other species, especially when you're farming and ranching and then you hunt as well. It's just kind of easy to forget about those other species, like you mentioned. As far as some specific things that I'll start with ranchers, because I typically work with ranchers more than, than farmers in my current role. But again, I tell them that a rancher with, with a bird dog is the best friend a quail has and I want them to think like a quail and what are the enemies of quail and how do their management actions impact quail habitat. My preacher Paul Shero often starts a sermon by saying you're free to choose your actions but you're not free to choose the consequences and I tell people that has just as much implications for our 15 year old sons and daughters as it does for the back 40. So we got to think about what those actions are, actions and reactions. Um, think everything from our stocking rate to brush control. Uh, if we implement improved pastures, just keep in mind that those are not necessarily improved when it comes to wildlife species. 
So again, think about what, what you're planning on doing or what you have done. Think about the future generation. Where do your kids and your grandkids figure into that equation? And will they have the same goals that you do? It's, it's always a good thing to talk about uh, if you're in that uh, 50 plus or 60 plus age category before you begin to succeed those lands down to another generation, talk with them, share your vision for the land and see how that fits with their vision. That's some great advice. That's what we strive to do here at TALT as well with conservation easements, especially in the perpetual aspect. That's a lot of serious planning and forethought to take into consideration. So that I think works well hand in hand together. Whenever I drive from, say, San Antonio down Interstate 10 to Junction, because that's where I turn north to go to San Angelo, which is where I reside, between San Antonio and Kerrville, every hilltop has one or more houses on it. And I mean, it's been that way for 10 years, it's urban growth. And I was down that way last week, and increasingly so, it's more and more hilltops between Kerrville and Junction, 50 miles to the west. And again, you see those hilltops claimed as house, home sites. And that's just, a, again, an indication of our population growth. And you know, ultimately, if we think of our conservation issues, whether really for any species, uh, it's the ultimate situation is population growth. But we've got to deal with some of the more uh, direct implications of that and what can we have an impact on and that's again, our attitude and our willingness to consider wildlife and their needs and make adjustments or at the Bob White Brigade, what we call it is IAO, improvise, adapt and overcome. Speaking of those fragmentations that you see, have you done any specific research on the correlation between fragmentation and quail specifically? We have not, uh, I have not. I, I work for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation and our headquarters is in Roby, Texas, which is rural Fisher County, north of Sweetwater. And while the, the fragmentation rate there is certainly not as obvious as it is if you go east of there back towards the Metroplex, uh, when somebody comes to me and they, they say, you know, I used to have quail 30 years ago. I used to go out with my 410, walk the fence row, didn't need a bird dog. And now I have no quail. And then they'll say, and nothing's changed. And I'll say, well, perhaps nothing's changed on your 80 acres, but I encourage them to get on Google Earth, hone in, focus in on their property, and then zoom out and just stop every couple thousand feet to where you're looking at a larger footprint. And I promise you, things have changed. And if you're an astute, student of the land, you'll be able to pick those up quite quite easily. I, I agree, Doc, Dr. Rollins. Uh, let, let's talk about some specific uh, practices or maybe some general management strategies uh, that maybe could be beneficial to quail uh, that maybe the, maybe the landowners already doing or, or could easily implement that, that would maybe benefit not only quail, but also benefit their, their current op operations. Well, again, let me start with the ranching community first because I know them the best. And I came up with a habitat evaluation tool about 20 years ago called the softball habitat evaluation technique. It's not very scientific. It's, it's built around the, the premise of slow pitch softball, 
which everyone has played at some point in their life. And so that gives them a good mental image of what quail habitat should look like. You ought to have what I call a quail house, something like a plum thicket or a lope bush, better softball throw apart. And I like to start with that when I'm educating people. I want them to know what the proper landscape should look like because only then can they really be decisive about, well, okay, I'm guilty or that's exactly what I'm doing. And so be able to, to do that, be mindful, be a, appreciate your brush. And when I say appreciate, I don't mean just clap for it and think highly of it, but to judge with heightened awareness or to be cautiously or sensitively aware of. Brush is important to most of our species of wildlife. It's very important to quail. And so we've got to be able to leave some of that. We always want to try to tilt the odds to the favor of our species, Bob White in my case, as opposed to their enemies, raccoons, skunks, those kinds of things. So think about that. Typically, I recommend understocking for native rangelands. Uh, if the NRCS recommended stocking rate might be 30 acres per animal unit, most properties are going heavier than that. Their brushes encroach. They don't have the amount of grazable acres they really think they have. And over time, stocking rates just tend to get a little more, a little heavier. I, I appreciate understocking. And that's consciously leaving more grass out there than you know uh, what might be the, the recommended stocking rate. Quail will benefit from that nesting cover. Um, we wanna see 300 clumps per acre of this little blue stem or silver blue stem for good nesting cover. If I think about farming practices, oh, and also on the rangeland before I go on, prescribed burning. And that's something that uh, as we move from west, as we move from Roby, Texas, over to East Texas, fire becomes more and more important as a ecological disturbance. Uh, in, in our part of the world on semi-arid rangelands, we have to be careful. We like to burn in El Nino years, but not necessarily in La Nina years. So. There are a lot of things, in Bob White Brigade, we say that there's lots of things that you can do. And we have a lot of cadences that are directed at things like uh, livestock grazing and the cactus and some of the pariahs that uh, many landowners look at. I often give the pledge to broomweed. A lot of people would despise broomweed, but it's a golden parachute for Bob Whites. So being able to know your plants and know how to manipulate them, that's the two basics that I have on rangelands. On the farmlands, it's probably things like maybe trying to set the clock back a little bit, um, having a little bit greater tolerance of some of the quote unquote weeds, which uh, I often jab the county agents. They'll have a poster behind their desk that says common weeds of Texas. I say, I could take some white out and call that the key food plants for quail and it'd be the same plants. So again, appreciating how those plants are important to various species of wildlife. And then being able to maybe save some of the odd areas. Um, maybe a center pivot has 30 acres of corners or whatever that you could devote to wildlife. So there's, there's various ways to tweak it. Um, and, and I just encourage a landowner that's interested. Number one, Aldo Leopold said that the urge to comprehend must precede the urge to reform. Become a student of quail, become a student of golden cheeked warblers or whatever the, the, the wildlife species du jour is. I want, to, I want to make one one point on your on your softball habitat evaluation technique. Uh, it's something that I learned from you many years ago, and uh, but I've used it 
just as opportunities to work with landowners, you know, out in the pasture. And when I explain that little technique, standing there in the middle of a field or middle of a pasture, it's amazing how landowners, we're all, suddenly we're clicking. We're on the same page when I can, you know, throw a softball from first base to shortstop, you know, and, and that's how far we're looking for, for some kind of, uh, maybe it's a, a brush species or a plum thicket or uh, what, what, whatever it may be. And getting that opportunity, it kind of make the light bulb suddenly starts clicking on when, when we see and just talk about, it's such a simple technique and such a simple thing to talk about a softball field, but it's, it definitely seems to work for me and, and has worked when I explain it to others. So uh, I've had good luck with that as, as, as well. Often say that it's I often say that the softball habitat evaluation technique, the acronym for which is SHET, be careful with your enunciation. <laughs> I often say that it's cowboy approved because I was at a field day 10 years ago and using the SHET technique and the cowboy comes up, comes up after me. He said, you know, until you showed us that softball deal, I never really understood what the boss wanted. He was obviously working for an absentee landowner who had quail on his radar, but the, the disconnect between the landowner and the guy on the land uh, was limiting his ability to think like a quail. So yeah, the softball habitat evaluation technique. And for those of you that want to look at that, you can go to YouTube and type in softball habitat evaluation or softball and quail, or go to our, re our website at uh, quailresearch.org for a list of those webisodes. It's all about perspective to get it to click with people. And speaking about perspective, shifting just a little bit, um, Dr. Rollins, what about our conservation partners? Um, how can they work with landowners to leverage private land stewardship? At the Bob White Brigade, we have various phrases that we just call phrase of the day. And the phrase of the day for day three is the phrase gung-ho. Gung-ho in most of our minds means that Marine, it's damn the torpedoes full steam ahead kind of thing, a, a very aggressive kind of a person. But actually the phrase gung-ho is a Chinese phrase that means pull together. And so when we say gung-ho, gung-ho, pull together towards a common goal. Uh, and I think uh, most of us in the conservation community do that. Uh, we all have our particular species of interest. Uh, mine is, is Bob White and Scale Quail, but they have a lot of similarities, obviously, with, with groups like Texas Southwest Cattle Raisers. I deal with those guys and always appreciate the relationship that I've had with them over the years. And uh, it, it was very, I was at the, uh, real quickly, I was at the, uh, the big place in Nashville, Tennessee, the Opryland Hotel for a national meeting several years ago. And I'm walking around that maze of corners in that facility and I bump into five presidents of the Texas Southwest Cattle Raisers. And I, I appreciate all of them because they're all interested in quail. They're that quail hunter with a, they're that rancher with a cowboy. I mean, with a, with a bird dog. And one of them, John Dudley from uh, Comanche, Texas said, Hell, uh, quote, hell, you can't even think about being president of the cattle raisers if you don't love quail, end quote. And I just say amen to that. <laughs> I, I do agree. I think uh, as far as our working with the, some of the different partners that we have, and I'm sure that the quail have as well, um, I think a lot of us are all 
we're all on the same page. It's just we're all trying to to, to manage and, and get um, and meet the goals and objectives of whichever land uh, or landowner or, or area of, of the state that we're in. Um, it doesn't really matter in terms of my mind, in terms of how we get there. There's, a, there's more than one way to get there a lot of times. But uh, I think if we'd all communicate and we do communicate, a lot of times we can achieve um, all the all of our goals um, and, and the landowner, the, the rancher, the farmer, the quail person, the deer person, you know, we can all uh, make things work as long as we talk and, and, and work with each other. Well, I'll go back to Will Rogers one more time. He said the people's opinions are changed through observation and not through argument. So again, the opportunity for us to work together synergistically and again, while I'm talking about quail, if I've got somebody talking about horn, Texas horned lizards, horny toads, as I call them, we're right on the same metric there because managing for a whole suite of species. And I can do that compatibly with my ranching practices and my farming practices in most situations. Absolutely. So um, just kind of look, looking out to the future, um, what, what's on your horizon? And uh, if you know of any research or any work that's going on in the, in the conservation world for, pertaining to quail, um, kind of what's, kind of what's, what should we look, be looking for in, in, in the future? Well, the future for me, I still work half time for the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch as an outreach director, a job that I love that allows me to do things like quail masters for the adults and bobwhite brigades for the youth. As far as the research, uh, my successor there at the research ranch is Brad Kubechka, Dr. Brad Kubechka, who was one of my graduate students. And he, his passion for quail, uh, I think mirrors mine. And so he's coming in with fresh ideas, new thoughts, new technologies. And so we're looking forward to the next 10 years at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And then nationally, again, there, there's nothing that stimulates more research interest than a declining species. Now, Bob Whites aren't typically thought of as a declining species, but all the records, all the metrics show that they are. And so there are some bright spots. I mean, I, I'm on national committees and national forums and so forth. And I can look at some of the progress that I see report. And now they're beginning to see renewed hope and to see things like everything from translocation to various practices that may turn out to be a savior or godsend to a lot of those places that have decent habitat, but just no birds. There's a, there's a premise in the wildlife world that if you build it, they will come. But if there's nobody around them to come, they can't. So that's why we're often uh, invested in translocation of quail back to areas as a restoration technique. And places like Tall Timbers Research Station down in Florida have, have set the example for that. We're just trying to follow what some of the things they've done. That's great. Have you seen much success in translocating quail? Our success has been, I'll say, low to fair. Now, that doesn't mean we're ready to quit. Um, we're, we're still tweaking the knobs. The ones at Tall Timbers have done, they've had more success than we have. They've been doing it longer than we have. So again, Everything that you do, I always tell people perseverance is critical in life. 
nobody ever heard of Preparation G. You got to keep going. So uh, that's kind of where we're at and, and moving forward. Uh, we're also doing some research on chick ecology. Chicks are the, one of the real black boxes in the quail equation. They're very difficult to study. They're like wet toilet paper. You just can't touch them without them falling apart. So, uh, but we're moving forward this summer with some new uh, chick ecology studies there at the Rolling Plains Quail Research. And while I'm talking about the ranch, we'll be having an open house out there on a field day, probably in late September. If you're interested in that, follow us on our newsletter and you can uh, subscribe online to that at quailresearch.org. Absolutely. We'll be sure to share that as well on our platforms. That's great. That's excellent. Um, Dr. Rollins, it's, it's been great being able to, to have you on this week and, and been able to kind of highlight quail uh, specifically in terms of, of, of working lands and, and wildlife. Um, I want to thank, thank you for, for being able to take the time out of your day. And I know you're, you've got a busy schedule, um, even if you are partly retired, I guess. Um, but also, and I know you've mentioned several several websites and, and resources, but I also want to just uh, give you a, a, an opportunity to, if, to tell our, our listeners if there's any other uh, specific locations on the web or, or where they might need to, to, to find some better information on, on managing for quail, uh, if, you, if you could share that with us. Well, of course, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, uh, nationally, there's a National Bobwhite Conservation Initiative, MBCI, uh, several websites like that, various states, again, that are actively focused on quail. And again, that would, down in Florida, Tall Timbers Research, I think it's ttrs.org, it has some great information. They basically led the charge over the last 30 years. And, and again, we're hoping to try to replicate many of the things that they found work in a 55 inch rainfall zone but let's see how well they work in a 25 inch rainfall zone. So we gotta be able to, uh, to use the information that we have as a crescent wrench. It's not always the best tool for the job and you can bust your knuckles, but it is, it is an adjustable wrench and we've gotta figure out how such things as prescribed burning, prescribed grazing, intensive early stocking, patch burn grazing, tools that are really innovative tools and be able to adapt those to the environment that we're in for, our, in my case, West Texas. Absolutely. And I, I want to also throw in uh, one more thing here. You, you do have your own podcast that I've, I've had the opportunity to listen to, I, I believe every, every episode, um, but the Dr. Dell on Quail, if you are out there and you're interested in podcasts or maybe looking for some other podcasts, uh, I would encourage you to go and listen to that one. He's got a lot of information um, and kind of takes what we're just kind of touching on the surface here and, and dives a lot deeper um, in, in that entire podcast series. Uh, so if anybody has any interest in that, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. Um, does anybody have anything else they want to add here before we wrap up? I just want to add one more thing, a couple things actually. I want to commend Dr. Rollins on his passion for quail and using that to touch others and inspire others. It sure has inspired me, definitely. And um, really thankful for the opportunity to get to visit with you again and look forward to visiting with you in the future some more. Well, I've enjoyed my working opportunities with both of you. And I'll leave our, your listeners with one thought that I share in our Vespers program for the Bob White Brigaders. I have a 12 point plan that I call Susie's 12 point plan for success. That was my bird dog, Susie, 
25 years ago. And I won't bore you with all 12 of them, but number one is always hunt with good dogs. Always surround yourself with people that are faster, smarter, more knowledgeable than you. You're going to be better off just by the competition. So always hang with those people that are going to make you a better individual. I think that's some pretty sound advice uh, for everyone. So I think that's a good place to end things. And I, I thank you again. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And uh, you can catch us next time on Beyond the Fence Line. Beyond the Fence Line is brought to you by the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, dedicated to conserving the Texas heritage of agricultural lands, wildlife habitats, and natural resources. Find out more at txaglandtrust.org.